Hey everyone, it's Jason Highland at the Sub 70 Podcast, and this week's guest uh, was Gary Evans, who played on the European tour for a lot of years and uh, did it in an era in the 90s, and uh, the competition he played against over there was so good. He had so many legends playing at that time of Woosnam and Faldo and Monty and so many of those greats from that era, and the conversation I had with Gary was just fascinating. Uh, it's going to be another two-part uh, podcast as we went over the time again, but one of my favorite uh, interviews I've ever had a chance to do. I feel really fortunate uh, that I get to talk to these wonderful guys and everything they've accomplished, It's uh, and they couldn't be nicer, which makes it all the better. Um, Gary is also going to be playing some Champions Tour events on the European Tour side, and uh, he's kind of making a comeback to the game at the professional level. Um, he's a great follow. He's at Gary Evans Pro. You can follow him on Twitter and on Instagram. And also on Facebook, he's going to be sort of documenting uh, his process back uh, to the game of professional golf. So give it a follow. Uh, very articulate, very witty, very smart to follow on all forms of social media. So hope you guys really enjoy the podcast. I certainly did. And thanks for listening. Without further ado, here's Gary. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 podcast, European tour player Gary Evans. Gary, thanks for taking the time today uh, to be with us. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. It's nice to be talking to you. Well, you have a, a big birthday coming up here in February, the, uh, the 50th, and I've been uh, following you on Twitter and sort of your uh, quest to get back to competitive golf. So my question is, How's your game? How are you feeling? And, and what kind of things are you are you working on to kind of get ready for the, the Champions Tour and the European side and potentially the United States uh, side of it? Yeah, the um, pre-Christmas, um, I've been working really hard and um, on my fitness. And not that I was uh, massively unfit, but I just know that going back to the Tour, you know, unless your legs strong and you've got some supple, supple uh, you know uh, movements in, in my lower back you know I've got to be a little bit softer with my back uh, it's getting there which is really good but like I say before Christmas it was all kind of coming along really nicely um, I was hitting quite a lot of balls uh, I was playing probably three times a week um, hitting balls three times a week on the odd day um, and then, unfortunately, Christmas came along, a natural sort of week to 10-day break. Um, and then, unfortunately, I've had a number of things sort of fall um, fall into my lap, which has caused me not to be able to I haven't hit one shot in January, um, which is really quite disturbing. Um, I run a business. Uh, I've got... Uh, um, I represent Hugo Boss on the, um, um, you know, with uh, the retailers around Great Britain and Ireland. I act as an agent for them. Um, so I've been, you know, I had a couple of guys that were doing some work for me. Unfortunately, one of them had to leave um, at really an awkward time. So I've had to jump back in, um, work work that business because obviously it's an important business um i've got a 27 year relationship with hugo boss and uh it's important for me to make sure that that's working correctly um but unfortunately as a result of putting the time in there um and i've had one or two family issues you know uh, people that aren't particularly well 
Um, it's really taken my time and focus away from playing. Um, so to be frank with you, I'm a little bit frustrated at this moment in time. Um, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think, you know, more or less I'll be done with everything within two weeks. And then from there, I really will have to um, throw all of my attention into uh, practicing and playing again. Um, it's, it's a great shame because I felt really, you know, I'd organised my, my life to be sort of clear so that the road ahead was clear for me to just go into playing again. But sometimes life doesn't want to listen to your plans and, uh, you know, you just have to roll with the punches and get on with it. So that's where I am at the moment. It's a little bit frustrating. I'm assuming there, there's no way if you're going to do this and be as competitive as you can be, this can't be a, a part-time thing as good as those guys still all play at 50. You you know what it takes to be successful on tour for a long period of time. Sure. And I'm assuming this go-around too, it's got to be full effort if you're going to be at your absolute best. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, right. I mean, uh, I talk to guys on the Champions Tour, and they're always not shocked because they know how good those guys are, but you know just how low they go out of the gate and how good the level of play is you know, on the European side and on the, the Champions Tour over here of how good those players still are. Absolutely. I mean, there's no no there's no point in me teeing it up one time unless, you know, I'm fully committed to doing, you know, my absolute best and give myself the best chance to, you know, perform. Um, I've got nothing but the greatest respect for the guys, you know, on the Champions Tour and the Senior Tour, the Stacial Tour over here. Um you know, obviously, over in the States, you know, you've got a substantial tour there. You've got a lot of very well-known names um, that have been around for a very long time, and they are supremely good at what they do. Um, the Stacial Tour is obviously relatively young um, um, from, from you know, in terms of against the Champions Tour. Um, you know, we've got about 20, 22, 23 tournaments, I think, planned for this year, which is which is really good. The tour is growing, which is great. Um, but, you know, it's not like the old days. You know, when you're 20, 21, 22 years of age and you turn pro, uh, you're bulletproof. Um, all you can think about is is succeeding. Um, you know, your, your mental attitude uh, is all about rubbing shoulders with your heroes and, and trying to beat them. It's a slightly different thing when you're 49 years of age. You've been retired from the tour for... 12, 13 years, um, you've been working in the real world um, and you're going to go throw your hat back in the ring again, um, you've got to be prepared. And um, at this point in time, I'm not there. Give me another, give me another couple of months, um, maybe three months even, um, and, you know, I feel like I, you know, I won't be a million miles away. Um, I'm still hitting the ball. Um, you know, fairly decent distances. Um, certainly before Christmas, I was throwing in quite a lot of birdies. My short game was coming together. Um, and mentally, I was feeling really excited and and really looking forward. But like I said, you know, sometimes life throws a curveball at you and you've just got to react. And, you know, I've had to just get on with it. And I've had to sort of put my golf career on the back burner whilst I deal with the few problems that have come along. Um, with a bit of luck, um, I'm looking to uh, engage somebody to uh, run my business 
for me going forwards in the next you know couple of months i'll find the right guy i've already had a number of people approach me which is great and um you know that will give me the freedom to to put the time and the effort back into my golf which is is obviously necessary i also saw on twitter you were talking about some some swing changes that you wanted to make kind of as this you know uh, 2.0 of coming back to competitive golf is is starting to take shape and um you know technically what were those changes that you were trying to make and I saw a comment, I don't know if I construed this the right way, that there were some things even when you were playing on the European Tour for all those years being as successful as you were, that you were not looking back really, really happy with your golf swing and you think it's actually kind of improving now or there's other attributes that you kind of want to incorporate or or fix as you're coming back. So what changes were those that you're trying to to improve upon and make yourself better? Well, you know, it's basically... When I first turned pro in 92, you know, I had a very textbook golf swing, um, one that had won me quite a lot of tournaments and uh, got me to the Walker Cup and all the rest of it. And the first six, seven months on tour, I think I was lying sixth or seventh in the Romero after six months without a win. So I was very consistent and putting in the numbers. I broke my wrist towards the end of that year, but I didn't know that I'd broken it um, and as a consequence, uh, my game went downhill for the next two years. And then finally, I couldn't lift a golf club with my left hand in 94. Upon seeing five or six different specialists, nobody could really get to the bottom of it. And eventually, somebody told me that I'd broken my wrist. I had reconstructive surgery when I came back from that in uh, 95. Um, I had to change my grip quite considerably. I went from like a two-knuckle left hand to a four-knuckle left hand, which completely changed the way, you know, that the, the ball would come off the club face. Uh, I was hitting great big hooks, and, and obviously that's not, you know, as Lee Trevino once said, you know, uh, you can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen. Um, and um, And basically, I had to find a way to play the game from 95 until 2006 when I retired, and I had to manipulate um, an awful lot of my body movement um, in order to get the club face uh, square at impact with any consistency. And it was a golf swing that I hated. I mean, I just did not like the look of my golf swing, um, but to, to a degree, it was effective. Um, I think in 02 and 03, you know, I had more top 10s, I think, than anybody else in Europe. Um, for two years, um, I actually got my game to a reasonable standard, but you know, I was frustrated because I didn't feel that I could really quite hit the shots that I wanted to hit, really, which was down to the golf swing. Um, so when I quit in 06, um, I took a year out, I didn't hit a golf shot for a year, and my friends gave me a hard time and. Uh, they um, eventually got me to get my golf clubs out and with a clear mind and with a clear, you know, clear picture in my mind of what golf, a golf swing was supposed to be. Uh, I think I shot two under par the first round of golf I played. And ever since then, really, for the last 10, 11 years, um, I've tried very hard to get my golf swing to a place where it should be. So technically, what I used to do um, was I used to um, – my left arm would work too far away from me in the backswing, 
And as a consequence, I'd have quite a steep left arm at the top of my swing and quite laid off, um, which is actually quite amusing because nowadays it's become the popular thing, isn't it? I mean, like... Exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, this is something that I really... I didn't like. And as a, I had to really pull my hands down, clear my body very hard and squeeze squeeze the shot out at the bottom um, to hit the little fade, which is what I used to love playing with. Um, but it put an awful lot of um, strain on my body um, swinging that way. So since then, what I've been trying to do, and, and now that I've been putting the time in prior to Christmas, um, and it was really starting to come along a treat, I was trying to make sure that my left hand and my left arm were working closer to my body in the backswing, the first half of the backswing. So the club head wasn't getting behind my hands. So I wasn't you know, getting behind it and getting you know, ugly trapped. But I was actually turning, turning away together, my left arm coming with my, my torso. And as a consequence, my left arm was more across my body it looks slightly flatter if you like from from behind uh and i was getting the club pretty much on target and uh, at the top of the golf swing and from there i could unload really at the inside of the golf ball which is something that i haven't been able to do you know for a very very long time um and, you know, as a consequence, I'm hitting the ball slightly higher. I'm hitting the ball slightly further. And um, it's it's starting to feel comfortable. Um, you know, I've never been, a, you know, since I broke my wrist, you know, I'd hit a three iron and four iron knee high to a grasshopper. Um, but now I'm hitting three iron and four iron with a little bit of flight. And, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not a towering inferno. It's not coming down like a butterfly with sore feet. But I'm getting some trajectory while three iron and four iron. And, um, and that's given me a bit of confidence. So um, I feel like if I keep working towards that um, and trust it, um, then I think I will have pretty much every shot back in the armory. Whereas whilst I, for the majority of my time on the main tour, you know, between 95 and 2006, really all I had was, you know, a low fade. Um, I couldn't comfortably hit uh, a soft high draw with with any club in the bag um, because of my how poor my golf swing was. And you may ask, well, why didn't I change it back then? Which would be a very good question. But, you know, when you're trying to earn a living and when you don't have a great deal of, I should say, trust in, in too many uh, coaches, you find a way. And, you know, I, I managed to find a way to get the ball round. It wasn't comfortable. I didn't really like it. But I got something of a result which was consistent, which was enough for me. In a roundabout way, is the, the golf swing you have now feel more like your golf swing you had when you were an amateur? I, in other words, more your natural swing? Right. Where the with, Yes. Is it funny how it kind of comes back to when you first started playing and how I think everyone kind of has a natural golf swing? And it sounds like you've sort of just refound that position of the club where you're comfortable playing and not having to do any manipulation that your body is essentially not comfortable doing. Obviously, you have the talent that you could make that other swing work, but it sounds like it's more of your Absolutely. the natural way you want to play golf. Absolutely. I mean, the last, like I say, the last kind of 10 years, you go out and play golf with your pals, um, which is fun. You know, there's no pressure and it doesn't matter what you do or where you hit it. You know, you're just going out there and having fun. 
And I think that um, that's helped me. Um, there's no question when you get on tour, all of us professional golfers, we all go a bit nutty. We all go a bit mad. We all get a bit crazy with the game because the game beats you up or it can beat you up every single day if you allow it to. And you've got to have an incredibly strong mind for that not to happen. And honestly, the guys that you see week in, week out, the guys that have been up there year in, year out, are the guys that are incredibly strong-willed, very positive minds, and they don't allow negativity into their games. Um, you know, they find a way, they find a way, they find a way to dig it out of the dirt. Anyway, I've seen a lot of young players come along who've got tons of talent, but they don't have the mental stamina to withstand the abuse that the game hands out on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, uh, you know, mentally, I feel in a good place with, with myself, number one. Uh, number two, I don't have any particular expectation of how I'm going to perform against my former colleagues. Um, so I can't fail. I can only succeed. I can go out there. I can give it my best shot, and and that's how I feel going into this year. Uh, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to being on a golf course again. I'm looking forward to catching up with my old friends. Um, I'm looking forward to compete, competing again. So there's very little room in my mind for negativity at this point. Um, I'm really feeling positive, even though the last month, you know, I haven't really been out to to uh, put the time in. Spring is only 48 days away or so, so there is hope through this cold weather at the end of the tunnel here. And uh, if you get the itch to, to try some new clubs for 2019, our demo program on the Sub-70 Golf website is up and going. You can try all of our latest, greatest clubs. If you go to www.golfsub70.com. Uh, take a look. Any questions that you have, let us know. But it's a very easy and reasonable way to put new clubs to try in your hand and give us any feedback of how they work for you. Thanks again for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast with Gary. Uh, growing up in uh, the south part of England, um, in an area that has some really great golf courses and, and, and history of play, how, how did you start playing as a youngster and who introduced you to the game and, and how did that progression kind of come about? <laughs> I was lucky. Um, basically, my parents ran a pub uh, on the south coast and about half, well, three quarters of a mile away was the school along the promenade, that, my first school that I went to. Um, and occasionally some afternoons, you know, on a summer's day, um, my father, who didn't play any sport, um, would, would take me onto the putting green just to kill, you know, an hour of the afternoon, um, and spend some time with me because my parents spent most of their life working. They didn't really have a great deal of time for sort of family stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I kind of got used to putting there and as a growing child, I'd played any game with a ball. Tennis, table tennis, squash, cricket, football, everything. Um, and by the time I kind of got to 14, uh, 13, 14, you know, my father said, you know, Gary, you're going to have to play one game instead of all of these games. Um, you know, you'll never be great at, at, at all of them, but you might be great at one, so pick one. And the reason why I picked golf was simple. Um, I could play it on my own. 
um, with pretty much all the other games, you needed people to play with. And because I lived in the middle of town and, and most of my friends, school friends lived out of town, um, you know, it was difficult to get to play with people. Um, so I joined the golf club at uh, 12 years of age and I would go up the golf club. I could practice on my own. I could play 36 holes on my own. But then, you know, there's a little junior section there and I started making a few friends there. So I would spend literally, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning Saturday to 8 o'clock at night Sunday at the golf club um, playing and practicing. And, um, and I loved it. So it was very easy. And you kind of grow up in a very safe and secure area and, and you know, Obviously, you learn the rules of the game and uh, the rules of the club and, um, you know, just the honesty and the integrity of it all. And, and it's a good place for kids to grow up. So it's a shame that more kids don't get into it, really. Was it a Lynx-style golf course that you grew up playing? Uh, a Downland course. So it was on the South Downs. It's Worthen Golf Club. Um, so it was quite open, um, built on uh, chalk, um, quite windy, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of linksy, but you know, up and down hills, if you, don't, if you know what I mean. It was quite open. Um, but there was a lot of great golf courses, you know, Littlehampton, Rye. Um, there's a load of sort of link-style golf courses along the south coast, right the way to Kent to Royal St. George's, where the Open was, and Littlestone and places like that. Um, yeah, I, I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. There's a lot of good golf courses in the area. I've had the pleasure of playing Little Stone, Rye, and Royal St. George. I thought Rye was one of the greatest days I've ever had playing golf. I absolutely fell in love with that golf course. And, like, that's, you know, that's as good as it gets to me right there. Um, isn't it, it's, it's so creative. Isn't it it's amazing. How, how, you know, you come over and, and play a golf course like Rye, and so many people would look at a place like that that really don't know that much about golf and go, ooh, that doesn't look very nice. But, you know, when you get to see the nuances of, of golf course like that, um, and it's so natural, so beautiful, so sort of untouched by man, if you, if you like, you know, it, it's just a pleasure to play places like that. And unfortunately, there's not enough of those kind of golf courses around the world, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, growing up in the Midwest in the United States, everything's basically parkland. And then I started getting on this trend of, you know, Lynx Golf, and I think we were over there in 05 or 06, and I knew I would like it, but I I found it so creative, and you're never hitting the same shot twice, and the way you had to think about it. I, I think, personally, I think Lynx Golf is the most natural, beautiful way to play golf. It's uh, it's so, it's so, if you have an art, you know, I can see shots in Lynx Golf that you don't see or you don't have in Parkland-style golf, and I just find it much more appealing, personally. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to have, you can open up your imagination. You can hit any shot with any club and you can do it. Uh, whether it's chip and runs with four irons, you know, from 120 yards in, into a howling gale, um, or whether you're hitting a wedge, you know, 160 yards downwind, pitching it 40 yards short, trying to let it run. You know, you've got to be imaginative and you know i think phil mickelson is one of the guys that you know absolutely loves you know the challenge uh, that, that Lynx golf provides um but i i'll never forget who was i was playing with cheapest crikey um 
I was playing the Open Championship one year at Royal St. George's. I was playing with one of the Americans. Oh, he was so funny. I can't remember his name now. Uh, it wasn't Jerry Kelly, but it was one of the guys like that. And we were walking up 17, I think, at Royal St. George's, and it was pretty windy. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't very nice. It was a sunny day, but it was windy. And he says, Jesus, he says, I, I am, this is the last Open I'm ever playing. I said, why is that? He says, dude, he says, you can hit it down the middle of the fairway, and when you get up to your ball, you find yourself you know, a yard in the rough. He says, you know, these humps and hollows, it's just not fair. And I just laughed. I just, <laughs> it was just funny because he's not wrong. He's not wrong. It's not fair per se, um, but it is what it is, and it's the challenge. And, and uh, you know, the humps and hollows and, you know, the lies that you get at uh, Lynx Golf, that's what it's all about. It's not perfect. Um, you know, whereas you go to someone like Augusta and, and it's all laid out in front of you, and, you know, it's like, you know, beautiful fairways and perfect shots and, and really you've got to hit perfect shots otherwise you're you're not going to get anywhere well i i'm with you that i think that's the beauty the beauty of Lynx golf is they don't move much dirt on the best of them and just the natural bouncing of the ball to me just makes it more interesting so i it's if fun. i could uh, play in every open i would be in every one of them i think it's the greatest thing in the world so. <laughs> but you know it's, it's interesting you know you went that way so for me I went the other way. I grew up on that. So for me to go to kind of Parkland golf courses, I mean, when I went and played Oak Hill in the PGA Championship, I think 02 or 03, somewhere like that, when Sean McKeel won, what a golf course that was. I mean, it was so brutally difficult, um, you know, and you had to place your ball everywhere around the golf course. You know, you had to hit perfect shots and, and – so that, for me, was an incredible challenge. Probably the hardest golf course I've ever played, ever, was that set up that week uh, at Oak Hill, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I, got, I mean, I got brutalized. I think I shot 15 over par for the week, um, made the cut, but, you know, I think he won at one under par. It was incredibly difficult, but the challenge for me was that. It's interesting that you, you come the other way, you know, into links. Yes, I mean, obviously, a, a really, yeah, a Parkland golf, you kind of have to hit it to here, then you have to hit it to there. Yeah, and yeah. and it's just, it's a different way of playing, but, you know, like, uh, it's probably once you grow up with it and you see the other side of it, you always find the other side sort of interesting or new, right? You're sort Absolutely. of rediscovering golf a little bit of, wow, I can hit, you know, eight irons from 109 yards and bound it into there to get it to the pin versus the other direction. But I think that's a great thing about golf, yeah. that all of these styles can kind of bring out the best in you and then can your game adapt to it absolutely and then that's the great thing about this game you know it's not like tennis where you're playing on the same size court in every part wherever you go around the world you know that's the great thing about this game that you know you can pick and choose you can go hard you can go tough you can go links you go park and go down and you know it's it's phenomenal that's what makes this game so great the other question I had for you, and I noticed this when I was over there and I was the beneficiary of it, of the kindness and the openness of the clubs in the UK versus the States. So, you know, I was out playing golf at Littlestone and we had a good group with us. And then a member at Rye, we were talking to her at the bar afterwards and he invited us out to play. It, it seems like there's more access in the UK and it's not quite as closed off. And I'm wondering, you know, what's your thoughts on the 
generically speaking, clubs over in the UK and, and, and how they're set up? And then B, did that openness of the clubs allowing like a good amateur player like yourself to probably play those different places, how much did that help around your game when you were sort of growing up and getting better and you know thinking about becoming a professional? Oh, interesting question. Um, I think when I was young, you know, we're talking about the early 80s, you know, it was pretty tough for a young guy, you know, there was still, you know, kind of stiff upper lip around, you know, golf clubs um, around the UK, you know, it was very much rule orientated, you know, as a generational thing. Um, and it wasn't easy. It was only when I really became, you know, an England player um, and I won a number of large sort of tournaments, amateur tournaments did, I start you know, to get noticed and, and then then sort of doors started to open a little bit. I wouldn't say it was easy, um, you know, back in those days. I think golf in general over the, in this country you know, obviously has had to change with the times and, and, you know, recession and, you know, austerity and all the rest of it. And a lot of golf clubs are struggling still um, to get by. But I do think that... Um, I do think that when you guys come over here, you know, there's a lot of people that have never been to America. Um, and I, I think that generally Americans are just such nice people uh, when they come over and, and you're fun to be around. And, and I think people enjoy that, that uh, uh, camaraderie. I mean, I lived in Orlando for three years and, and I played golf with a bunch of guys there and I just had a ball and they were so welcoming. Um, and, and, you know, great fun to be around. In fact, you know, a bunch of us went to the Ryder Cup this year. Um, we went to the last Ryder Cup in the States when you guys killed us. Um, and so I think golf generally, I, I think, you know, golf is, you know, I keep saying it's such a great game because I think most of the people that play it have a respect for how hard the game is and the rules of the game and all the rest of it. And I think generally nice people play the game. I don't, I don't meet too many nasty people playing a game. Maybe I'm just lucky. Well, yeah, we couldn't, I, like the, the clubs over there could have not been more welcoming to us and our group when we were there. And it was a trip of a lifetime. We had such a great time and, mm. you know, it's such history in the UK of playing golf and, and being on those hallowed grounds of, mm. Uh, of those courses is absolutely incredible so it was it was a real a it's a it was, oh the best like I had after that when I was completely hooked on Lynx golf and everything was about when you get to really play real Lynx golf and you know, thank god in the states now there's an area um, I'm a member at a club out in the middle of Nebraska where it's called Dismal River that's all in the sand hills it's right next to sand hills right. and and you can actually play real Lynx golf with a ball bounces where in the states a lot of the links golf as you know live in orlando it's sort of pseudo links golf yeah. right it it looks linksy but you're still flying it up in the air so yeah from that point on i was totally hooked and it's also the spirit of the people like we just had such a great trip so it was it was it was enlightening to say the least to be over there and, and doing it so yeah it had an impression on me that's for sure good good uh, um walker cup you're on the walker cup it's quite an honor on both sides of the pond to be on there with that team. Um, I know you guys didn't win, but it still had to be quite special. And you had some great players on your, on your side. You had Harrington, yeah. McGinley, Coltart, guys who played very successfully on the European tour for a long time, including yourself. 
just looking back, how special was that? And is there any great memories of matches you had against the U.S. side where they had some old grizzled veterans, J.C. Goyon Doyle, and some real up-and-comers with, you know, Double D and Phil and Bob May and those guys? It was awesome. I, I mean, the whole experience was, was, was fantastic. It feels like yesterday. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just – I mean, it was so amazing, Port Marnock that weekend i mean the weather was just amazing um we hardly had any wind not a lot of wind we had a little breeze but nothing to speak of incredible number of spectators came out i'd say there were probably twenty thousand people even though you know it's supposed to be only 15 but there was more than that um and you know obviously my first experience of playing against americans and meeting americans you know was golf and um yeah i mean i was gutted on the first day um i think jim payne and myself were going up the last hole i think we were the second match and um i put him to um, i think double d hit it to about i want to say 40 feet um back right and the flag was front left and and i i was hitting my second shot from the left side of the fairways, had to go over a bunker. I didn't, I didn't hit a bad shot, I hit wedge for about 20 feet. Anyway, I think it might have been Franklin Langham, I'm not 100% sure who it was, but he holed it from the back edge and Jim Payne missed. We lost one down first match, you know, I was absolutely gutted. Um, felt like we played pretty good, but, uh, you know, to lose, you, know, you just don't expect to lose. Simple, you don't expect to lose. Uh, I played double D in the afternoon, uh, and I beat him three and two, and uh, we had a good game. I didn't play great tee to green, but I putted really well. And uh, I remember him coming up to my golf bag outside the clubhouse afterwards, and he pulled my putter out of the bag and put it down to look at it. He says, I'm going to snap this. <laughs> and we laughed and what have you, but, um, you know, great guy, became an incredible player, um, you know, incredible talent very dedicated i love the way that he played um uh and then obviously you know day two we had a chance to win in live play with about four with about three or four matches left on the course we actually were just in the lead but i think the last four or five matches all went down and then we ended up losing by about three or four points i think but uh but generally, it was an amazing couple of days. Uh, obviously, I got to see Phil play. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, Bobby May, great guy. Uh, I was so pulling for him in that USPJ Championship when he was up, up with Tiger Woods there. Uh, what was it, Valhalla, I think, or someone like yeah. that? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I heard a story. I don't know how true this is. I mean, I, mean, this, I know this is slightly... Off subject, but I, I heard that when Bobby May hold that putt on the uh, 72nd hole, I think you hold about a, I don't know, 15 footer, and the Tiger had a like an eight or nine footer to tie him. And apparently, when Bobby hold the putt and he picked the ball out of the hole, he turned around and, and Steve. Um, and Tiger's caddy went, "Congratulations, Bobby! You got yourself into a playoff." And that's and that's before Tigers stood over his eight foot. But I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. And the eight footer was a double breaker, if I remember right. Yeah. He still drained it. So, yeah. I, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I know that's not quite Walker Cup, but I mean, you know, it was just one of those stories. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say for any amateur, you know, for me, it was a big thing. It was a huge thing. I know some amateurs like Darren Clark, I think he turned pro before the Walker Cup. He didn't bother waiting. But for me, I really wanted to play it. I, I, you know, it meant something to me. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I love the old, you know, a lot of the old school stuff about the game. And, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit lost for words for where the rulings are going for this game. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Walker Cup is amazing. Well, yeah, well, that's that's uh, at the end here. I have that in my notes. We're gonna there, there's a couple <laughs> issues I would like to to get your uh, your opinion on, and, and we'll definitely it's that you brought that up. But we'll get there for sure. Um, then you go to Q school and you get through all the stages and get your car to the first go around, which is impressive and it's hard to do. And so now you're out in the European tour, and there were some real, I mean, legends when you got out there in the early '90s, still playing in their prime. Right. When you get through there and you're out there and you see Faldo and Seve and Langer, I mean, the list just goes yeah. on and on and on, yeah. icons. Mm-hmm. Is it? What's your first impression that you're out competing against these guys and is it hard not to hero worship or to be, my God, I'm, I'm hitting balls next to Sandy Lyle? Oh, yeah, and, right. how, and how do you talk yourself out of that? Because you've earned your way out there. You've had a hell of an amateur career. You've won at a high level in the amateur career. You should be out there. How does that balance sort of work? It was bonkers. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was bonkers. I mean, I'm a, I'm a regular kid from a regular home and, you know, nothing special, you know. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You're teeing up with your heroes. I mean, Seve, Lyle, Langer, Faldo, Woosnam, Elizabeth. I mean... One of the things that blew my mind, and they give you an idea of how cool a guy he is, I remember when I came back from surgery, um, 90, I think it was 90, end of 94, or it might have been, might have been 95, I can't remember, but I got drawn with Bernard Langer and Fred Couples at the German Masters, first two rounds. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm in Germany and playing with Bernard Langer, number one. I'm playing with Fred Couples, like Masters champion, like number two, and and, and as you know, you you try and you focus and you go and play, and, and but you're watching them and you're enjoying watching them, and and you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I mean, I loved playing with all of those guys. I mean, I loved it. I loved being that close and talking to them and, and getting to know them, and uh, you know. Uh, just watching them do their craft. Yeah, I played with Tom Watson at the German Masters, you, you know, uh, as well. You know, what a ball striker. I mean, unbelievable. Um, but Freddie was so cool. I mean, he knew that I was coming back from wrist surgery and I didn't play well. So I think I shot like a couple of 74s and I missed the cut and they both made the cut. And six months later, I think I was out in Thailand playing at Johnny Walker or something like that. And Freddie was there and I walk on the putting green and uh, just minding my own. And, and Freddie was there and he comes over to me and says, hey, guys, how's the wrist? Now, I'm a nobody. I'm a, I am a nobody. And for him, A, to remember my name and to make the effort to bother to come and say hello and how's my wrist, you know, that's mind-boggling for me. That's just so cool. Um, and I think that, you know, I just count myself as extremely lucky, extremely fortunate. Um, I had a very average career. I had a career that I was never happy with. Obviously, I didn't feel that I delivered what I was capable of and that was basically due to the wrist surgery and everything else but I did manage to 
live out my dreams and play with people and chat to these guys on and off the golf course. And I can't tell you how how much I respect them and how much I, I, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, you know, it, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, all of the guys were, you know, Faldo was a strange cat. I mean, really strange cat. I mean, you know, we were managed by the same management company, had the same manager, and we had very similar amateur careers. Um, and some days he would be very friendly and almost treat me like a protege. Uh, and then other days um, you'd walk past him in the clubhouse and he wouldn't even say hello to you. Um, he was a very strange cat, you know, like that. But that was his way. He had to shut himself off from everybody else. And that's, you know, he's admitted that. Um, and now, of course, he's got a very successful career, you know, announcing and uh, comes across as, you know, laugh a minute. But he was nothing like that on the tour. Um, and a lot of my colleagues would look at him and go, who's this guy now? You know, because they don't recognize him. Probably the last guy you guys thought would have a career in as a professional commentator, right? After playing with him all those years over there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean... Yeah, when when we found out that that's what he was going to do, we were like, "You can't be serious." I mean, like, the guy doesn't talk, um, and he never had a great relationship with the press on this side of the pond. I don't know how he was received over there, but he was never great with the press over this side. But you know, my hero was Sevi, and uh, um, playing with Sevi, and we were sponsored by Boss together, and we went for a few dinners together, and you know, I mean, I'll tell you a wonderful little story if you want to hear it. Absolutely. You. This is just one of my favorite stories ever. Um, this was about 96. We were in Germany and we were out to dinner with the board, Hugo Boss. And um, we'd had dinner and at the dinner there was, um, from a playing point of view, there was Bernard Langer, Sevi Ballesteros, there was a, an Englishman called Mark Davis who twice won on the European tour. And there was a young kid called Steve Webster who just turned pro. It was his first year with on the tour, first year with Hugo Boss. And Sevi's his absolute hero. And this kid's five foot six, good looking boy. Sevi's six foot one, the best looking guy you've ever seen. Uh, and with an aura. And we finished dinner. The board disappeared. It's quite early. It's about half past nine, Friday evening. And the head of sponsorship for Hugo Boss, uh, a guy called Ralph, uh, uh, Rolf Beisfanger, said, do you guys suspend a quick beer in the square? So we were like, yeah, sure. And it's Friday night. I'd missed the cut. Sevi had missed the cut. Mark had missed the cut. But Steve had made the cut. And uh, so we walk out of this little restaurant. We're walking about 100 yards down this alleyway where there's a few little restaurants and cafes. And there's, I'll never forget, there were these two girls, women, sat outside, probably about 40 years of age, beautiful, blonde, all the jewellery on, looking the part. And we're walking along the alleyway, and these two women are staring at Sevi. I mean, staring at him, undressing him with their eyes. And Steve is walking next to Sevi. And Sevi puts his arms around Steve and says, Hey, he says, I think they like you, Mark. Like this. <laughs> and he says, I think they're looking at you, Sevi. He says, No, he says, I think they like you. Hey, you're young, you're good looking. Uh, I think uh, you have a chance. Like this. And it was just lovely, right? He just made him feel a million dollars. He didn't need to do it, you know, but he's a young kid. So we go into the, we go into the um, square 
and you know, we order a drink and, and Steve's having a Coke and we're all having a beer and, you know, it's, it's quite busy and there's quite a lot of people around. And suddenly, you know, two or three girls turn up, you know, close by and then another two or three turn up close by and they're all looking at Sebi and Sebi, you know, he had that smile that he had. And uh, and Sebi turns around to Steve and says, uh, he says, uh, he says uh, what time you play tomorrow? He says, uh, 9.30, Sebi. He says, well, he says, it's time you go to bed now. He's uh, getting a little late, huh? And Steve goes, no, no, he says, I'm fine, Sebi. I'm fine. I'm drinking Coke. I'm absolutely fine. Like, I'm nowhere, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm fine. No, no, my friend, if you want to be a champion, you have to go to get your bed, eh? You have to get your sleep. Ralph, uh, call, uh, Rolf, call my friend a taxi like this. Anyway, Steve's like nearly in tears. Right? He doesn't want to go anywhere. He wants to hang. Right. Right, he's hanging with the hero. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, I mean, this was the most beautiful thing. So 10 minutes later, the taxi arrives. Rolf says, the taxi's here. He says, uh, Steve, can, can you go? He's, uh, you know, your taxi in the outside life. And Steve's like, Savvy, I'm fine. I'm staying with you. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, I feel a little tired too. He says, I'll take you with me. Let's go. Like that. And they both walked off down the alleyway. It was always... Sevy always was going. He was never going to hang around. He was never going to go out. But he just just teased Steve enough. And they yeah. put, put his arm around and walked back down the other way into the taxi and off they went to the moonlight, you know. But it was lovely the way that he, he interacted with this young kid. You know, he was just very friendly. He was fun. And he took him under his wing. And they became good friends. And it was just lovely. That kind of transitions to my next sort of a question, but it's also wondering your observation. I, I talked to Jesper Parnovic about this, and, and you can tell he has such fond memories of the European tour in the late 80s and you know early 90s when he was on there. And he kind of called it like more of a of a lifestyle. Mm. Uh, you guys all traveled together. You hung out. So you're just kind of, the bar scenes were fun. And I think on this side of the ocean, true golf fans who are really into it like I am and, and whatnot, there's this reverence for the European tour of that era of, you know, we always picture like Sam Torrance, you know, with a cigarette and a beer, even though he's made the cut on Saturday night because it's just not worth leaving quite yet. Yeah. And like they had a beautiful balance of living life, but playing at a high level. And it just looks like you guys had a hell of a lot of fun in that era of the camaraderie and what the European tour was all about in that, that era. And then, is that a fair assessment, or is that romanticizing what it was kind of like back then a little too much? Was it? I mean, you guys had to play, you had to practice, you had to do it, but was there that element of it as well, of camaraderie and fun? 100%. I mean, you know, the absolute fact is that, you know, a few of the guys, you know, Ian Woosden and Sam Torrance, you know, yeah, they, they loved a beer, but boy, could they play. I mean, they could seriously play. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I... You know, my early years, I went out to dinner a few times with a few of those guys, and like, I was like, wow. I mean, wow. You know, bottle of red, another bottle of red, another bottle of red. And I'm like, no, I, I can't. I can't do this because A, I've never been a drinker, and B, um, you know, I will be dead tomorrow morning if I participate. Um, and, but some of these guys, some of the old school, you know, could do that. Now, it hurt some people. You know, I think one of the one of the best players that I felt that didn't really make it and should have done better was Wayne Riley. He's now an announcer on Sky. He won the Scottish Open. He, I think he won the Australian Open, you know, or Australian Masters or something like that. He won a few times, but he was a hell of a go golfer, really good golfer. Um, 
but he just got drawn in by a couple of guys that did like a drink and um you know i i think that it hurt him ultimately it hurt him um but you know that's why faldo i think did his own thing and, and stayed away from everybody back in those days it was very easy you you know you'd stay in two or three hotels all of you so you'd wander down to the bar at half six and, and everyone would be in the bar and then you'd peel off in threes and fours and fives and go off to dinner at different places. And that's how it was. And the Swedes went to dinner with the Swedes and the Scots went to dinner with the Scots and and the Spanish went to dinner with the Spanish. And, and, and that's how it was. Um, yeah, it was like a family. Um, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And we had a lot of giggles. I mean, you know, Jeepers, if I actually sat down and, and wrote wrote down some of the stories, I mean, I could write out of a book, but, um, you know, half of it you just couldn't really repeat, you know, because it's just so, you can't believe that some of these people behaved that way. Um, but they didn't do anything bad. They didn't do anything wrong to people. They just let themselves go a little bit. Um, but they had fun. It was just about having fun, um, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, playing with Woozy and, and Lyle, I think Lyle, I think Sandy Lyle, yes, he had a funky golf swing, but you've never seen anyone hit all. Him and Woosnam, if you put them on the range with a one-iron, back in the day, the old butter knife, nobody could touch the pair of them. And you've got one guy at six foot three and one guy at five foot three. And both of them hit one-irons like you just couldn't believe. I mean, no one uses a one-iron now. Um, you know, it was incredible the talent that some of these guys had back then. Well, that's what I'm saying. You played in an era where, I mean, talk about the star, like the star power and the quality of those players on that European tour and the Hall of Fame type careers. It was, it's actually pretty crazy if you just start naming off all of them of the guys mm. you played against. Of how good for mm. an extended period of time those guys were, and how you know, it's actually pretty amazing of the star power that tour had in that era. Well, the European Tour made a big mistake back in, I want to say, I want to say kind of the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. You had, you had Langer, Lyle, Faldo, Woosnam, all turning sort of 46, 47, 48. And back then, what they should have done, they should have turned their senior tour into a 45 years and older tour. And forgot about the 50 and just done it for themselves because ultimately, you know, the senior tour in Europe, you know, why couldn't they do that? They should have done that because that senior tour with those names would have been absolutely mind-blowing um, and would have gained an awful lot of uh, exposure and a lot of attention. Um, but they didn't do it. And as a consequence, you know, um, you know, a few of the guys stopped playing. A few of the guys went to go play in the States, you know, eventually. But they could have had an incredible, you know, four or five year uh, window of success with the names that they had, but they didn't. 